0: morning today's scripture readings from James um, chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 and you can find the passage in page 6 of your bulletins if you'd like to follow along what causes fights and quarrels among you don't they come from your desires that battle within you you desire but do not have so you kill you covet but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and fight You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom.
1: Morning again. Well, last week we began a series called The Practices of a Peacemaking Community. And uh, we want to continue in this series today. But next week and throughout the month of July, we're privileged to have our brother, Pastor Erwin Entz. He's going to come and, and uh, preach and, and be with us for that time uh, for about five weeks. Uh, He will be preaching through the the book of Hebrew. I'm not sure if he's going to try to tackle the entire book in those five weeks or if he's going to take selected passages. But either way, uh, we will be in in Hebrew. Uh, You know, as I've been thinking about this, we come today to a a topic of resolving conflict. We all need this. We all recognize conflict in our lives uh, and within ourselves. And so I want to get into that a little bit today. But first, we probably should pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the privileges you give us. Uh, all of the privileges are yes in Christ. God, we know that you're able to move on our hearts, to change our hearts. That's what you promise, And so we ask that you will do so, oh God, in this time. Thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, sometimes I'm just sitting there at home and, and uh, Gio wants to go out and, and play. He just comes and, and sits down and crosses arms. Daddy, I'm mad with you. Yeah, wh- what's going on? I'm mad because you won't let me go to Wynn's house. Well, you you know we're about to have dinner, right? I'm still mad because... You won't let me do what I want to do. You know, at times it appears that conflicts appear out of nowhere, but they're just right underneath the surface. We want to do what we want to do. Whether it's being a newlywed and you are have a housemate for the first time in your life, um, conflicts arise because there are things that we have planned in our minds. There are things that we want to do, and it doesn't always go the way that we want them to go. Or you have a new roommate situation and you thought it was ideal and you recognize that their standard of living is a bit lower than yours. So you you have, a, you have decided that the solution should be, it's better to be high maintenance and to live alone. We try to fix these things in the best way we know how, we try to fix these things by coming with some type of solution. Even as we look at our national news these days, for weeks now, you know, we've been wondering about these children that have been separated from their parents, uh, so heartbreaking. uh, And and it appears that there is no hope because how can you be reunited with your parents that you've been separated from? We don't know what the outcome is going to be, but we're praying. And I would encourage you to pray for that conflictual uh, situation as well. It conflicts on different sides, nationally with the government deciding what should we do with the laws, uh, with the president deciding how can we fix this. With parents' hearts in turmoil, uh, thinking about where are my children, uh, and will I ever see them again? The children wanted the same things, uh, in turmoil, and conflict of their soul. Though they have housing and clothes, but but what would happen? What would happen to, to them? Even as you begin to think, if those of you who have nieces and nephews and children of your own, uh, just grappling with what that must feel like not to be with your children and have them away from you. And will you ever see them again? Conflicts of our own souls happen, right? Because we are in our homes and workplaces where things come up, fights happen verbally, in our workplaces, uh, folks requiring too much of us, uh, then we can actually give and and we're fearful that we're not gonna be able to give enough and and that we may lose our jobs or we may lose opportunities to continue to move forward. Uh, Heartbreaking conflicts that arise Tensions continue, disputes quickly sprout into bigger issues for us at times. But God is not immune to our conflicts. He doesn't look aside from our conflicts and and just for us to fix them, but he comes to us because God loves justice. He's a God of love, and he's a God of justice as well. He doesn't leave us to grapple with the problems of our day, nor with the problems of our own hearts, and we know this all too well for those who are in Christ and how much we need him, need to depend on him. But ultimately, as we see our conflicts and as we look at them, we recognize that really they're against God. The first conflict was against him. Cosmic treason against the God of the cosmos. When Adam sinned against God, that was conflict which brought death. Death. To mankind. And so ultimately it's a it's against God. And James makes the case clear, you know, that, that God is indeed a gracious lawgiver and judge. And we see that in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So God is the only one who can save by grace and destroy according to his holy sovereign will. He is the maker of all things, the sustainer and redeemer of all. He alone has the rights to do all he has planned and willed. And James even states in uh, verse 6 there, but he gives more grace. Where there are shortcomings, he gives more grace even where there are conflicts, he gives more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this promise is a, it's indeed a quote from Proverbs three thirty four, 34. Because we see throughout scripture the same thing. God being gracious over and over again. God bringing those in humble submission to his will. But those who want to go their own way. God opposes them because they have not come under his authoritative will. God requires us to be humble. Uh, So from scripture, we know this humility involves being in a relationship with him because he's shown mercy towards those that he has saved. In James 2.12, he implores his readers even To speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Why do his readers need this assurance? Why do we need this assurance? So James is here addressing people that are living out their inner divisions in society with strife and discord. And it's sad, it's sad to see human nature in this place of being in conflict where there's been unresolved amongst them and where situations really boil over into more and more distressing and stressful situations, making for a community that is troublesome. That is, troublemaking instead of peacemaking. So there's vital need for God. There's vital need for him to come and bridge the gaps, to bring his type of reconciliation. But God doesn't hide the conflict that we go through in our lives. He doesn't pretend that they're not there. But he exposes the source of our conflicts and how they spread in our community. He does not leave us there but he gives us the solution even to to the to how to deal with it the war and strife that happens in our lives so first let, let's look at the this source of this conflict because we we know there are many things written about how to resolve conflict between one brother to another even jesus tells us in matthew 18 how to go to one another but here we want to look at what What's underneath all of that? What's the origination of this type of conflict? What's the source of this conflict? So James has this idea for uh, how sinful passions lead to strife. He asks this rhetorical question. You know, he said, what, in verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from desires that battle within you James says fights and quarrels come from desires and pleasures that battle within you even Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 15 he said the things that come out of your mouths come from the heart and these things defile us for out of the heart comes this evil desire come murder adultery sexual immorality theft False testimony, slander. These are what defile us. These things bring conflict in our lives. So James has to disclose how our sinful passions lead to these battles in our community through several realities. The first reality is found in verse 2 there. You want something, but you don't get it. So the, the result is this. You murder. You kill You desire it so eagerly and with so strong resolve that you're willing to put to death your brother or your sister. It could be literally, but here he's talking about in your heart. You're putting them to death through how you think about them, things that you say about them. So you decide to kill them in your thought life and in your heart. You want something, you don't get it. Reality number two, you covet, but you cannot have what you want. So it ends up in quarreling and fighting. You jealously desire something that your brother or sister has or that's out there in the world. There's envy in it. You you have these intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. You believe that you can't have it. You're on your own, so you you covet, you want it, and you cannot have what you want, says the word here. Reality number three, you do not have because you do not ask God. And James says in chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. That's God's promise to us. That if we pray to him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus, he will give us what we ask for. According to his will. For his glory. In Jesus. It's never outside of Jesus. It's never outside of his will. But sometimes our asking is that. God, give me what my heart desires, no matter what. I got to have it. No matter what it is, for some of you, you know what the things are that you are uh, asking God for that He has not said that you could have, but you want it. I remember having this battle this when tablets first came out uh, through Apple. I wanted one of those mini tablets. But I was like, how can I justify getting one of these? They're expensive for me right now, and I I don't know how to justify. I I need one. I just need it. You know, I could read some books on it. I could play games maybe, but I just want to read, really. I just want to read and do some work on it, you know. Needless to say, I never got that tablet, and I don't foresee me getting one because I really don't need one. It was just a strong desire that I had. It was shiny. It was pretty. It was, you know, it drew me in. What was happening really is I was lusting after this object. And that's where it starts, doesn't it? We want something. And so we ask God for it. God, I can justify how I need to have it. We are to ask God for things. We are to pray for things, right? And it doesn't mean that we will get them. Because underneath this type of asking, whenever there's coveting in, in, involved, whenever you want to get something and you don't get it, so you kill. What, what's going on here? Well, James says, reality number four is when you ask, you do not receive what you want. Why? Because... You're asking with the wrong motives. You're asking for something out of the wickedness of your heart and not out of the goodness of your heart. You're asking badly. That's that word there. You're asking badly in this moral sense that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There it is. I want my pleasures to be filled up. I want what I want, and I want it now because I want to feel good about what I have. I want to feel good about myself. I want to see that I'm accomplishing something, so I, gotta, I have to have what I desire because it's going to tell me how good I am and how upstanding I am and how I'm just going to be okay. The wrong motives. And so we look again at James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So we we learn that when we ask for wisdom, we must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all he does. This is what's going on underneath with the bad motives. This this person is unstable. They're waffling back and forth. They're in the house of God. They're in the relationship with God, but yet they're moving away from God and turning to the things of their pleasures. And James makes it clear that this is unfaithfulness before the Lord. In verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or don't you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? You can't have it both ways. Be a friend of God and want the things of God. And on the other side, be a friend of the world and want the things of the world. The world hates God. Jesus made that clear. If the world hates me and hated me, the world will hate you too. And yet sometimes we want to yoke ourselves in the ways of the world. Direct opposition against the God of love, the father who cares for us. And so, yes, we're angry whenever we don't get what we want, when we think that we would deserve it. But a a father that cares is going to protect you. He's going to put a fence up so that you do not run into the road. He's going he's to protect you. He's going to teach you his ways so that you do not move outside of them into danger. He's going to expose you to the type of people that you need to fellowship with, the people that love him so that you can grow in him to be more like him. He, he's not going to allow you to be in a relationship with someone who does not know who he is? Because sometimes that's hiding. Sometimes that's entering into a situation in a romantic situation with somebody that don't have the same intentions in mind as you. Yes, there's common grace, but God wants the best for his children. So He's going to protect you. He's going to draw you away from the ways and the things of the world so that you are indeed faithful. And this was the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament. God called them into fellowship, into covenant with Him, declaring that He will keep the covenant covenant, declaring what would happen if you do not keep it to His people. And what happens? God's people become unfaithful to Him. They become stubborn. They become prideful, they become stiff-necked. And they move away from God and they find their own pleasures outside of God's will. What is God to do with a people like that? What is God to do in a community like that? Part of us thinks that, well, we're doomed now. He's going to strike us. He's going to do away with us. No, he doesn't. God moves towards us with his fatherly care. He reminds us of his declaration of love over us. He delights in us further. He doesn't leave us where we are, but he moves towards us. He doesn't leave us unfaithful, but he calls us back to his faithfulness as a people. The next thing we want to look at here is the, whenever you have what James is talking about this, this idea of, uh, of, of sort of dealing with this type of conflict, you know, there's envy, envy and there's selfish ambition. And that automatically leads to slander, tearing down a brother, a sister. It leads to spreading conflict instead of ceasing conflict. In verse 11, he says here, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks... I my page here, sorry. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it by sitting in judgment on it. So slander is indeed speaking against another person, which continues to bring conflict in the community of believers. It brings division. It's, it's a violation of the law of God. Instead of building up the body of Christ in love, slander tears it down. Those who slander have their self-appointed positions over other people in authority. They put themselves and their minds and their heart in positions of superiority. As one scholar suggests, defamation of our brothers involves other sins too. Slanderers do not love. They're not humble. Slanderers appoint themselves into a position of superiority and dim- diminishes his neighbor. For only, sland- only superiors judge their inferiors. That is the position of their hearts. Superior over others. When you speak against a brother or a sister, you're speaking against yourself. You're exposing the envy and the selfish ambition. You're furthering your lack of humility as well when you do that. You're increasing bitterness in your own heart towards other people. It's increasing distrust within your own heart of others. And it's increasing criticisms of other people as well. So as as judge... There is a claim on enforcing the law. But, re, but really, there is a violation of the law of God when you put yourself in the seat of a judge. Who has made you judge over your brother or your sister? Who has made you judge over God and his law? Matthew, in, in Matthew, Jesus says, you know, we we do well. We, we, we do look at the speck of sawdust that's in our brother's eye. But we pay no attention to the plank in our own eye. How can we say to our brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? What is the issue here? The focus on being under God's law so that you can see to take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will have proper perspective on what's in your brother's eye. He has a speck of sawdust in his eye compared to the plank of wood that's in your eye. It is I who need to be measured by the righteous judge and not attempting to become judge and the judge of my neighbor. The law of God is the is this command, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, in, in light of this, this idea of spreading conflict. On my block, my daughter and I, we were just outside one day, my four-year-old, and we were taking things out of the car. And our neighbor walked by. She usually walks by, you know, she's just sort of looking forward, walking very fast down to the corner store. We see her walking back and forth all the time. But this time, when she walked past us, she murmured something under her breath. And And it shook me, in a way. I'm like, did she just say what I thought she said? You know, by the look on her face, it wasn't pleasant. So when I played it back, I realized that she had criticized my daughter by calling her a name. And I'm there, you know, to protect my daughter, and immediately I'm thinking of ways I can destroy her. You know, I'm thinking of of ways that I need to deal with her if something goes down here. You know, in light of what she said, it was very combative. And, you know, I want to protect my daughter's ears, too, from this. Uh, who is she to speak to my daughter in such a way? So in my heart, of course, there's what's there is a desire to want to protect, but I went further than that. I began to criticize her in my heart and fantasize what I would do to her if she <laughs> did something to my daughter. So we realize in our own hearts there's a need for us to extend forgiveness to our neighbors, to stop the criticism, to put things in their right perspective, to stop spreading and inflaming the conflict that's in our our souls, to really bring what we have that's conflictual to God first, to deal with what's going on deep down in our hearts. Because the solution is this. We need God's grace. We need his grace. And that's where James takes us to. He said, but God gives more grace when these things begin to spread. He gives more grace. Because the scripture does say God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Those that he has called. Those who are listening to him. So how do we do this? How do we walk in humility And this is the last point here. We submit to God. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This submission to God means that we are resisting Satan and his temptations towards our minds. We're saying yes to God. We are fleeing from him and his thoughts and his way of life. And we're turning to God and his thoughts and God's way of life. Jesus gave us a prime example of this in Matthew 4. Each time Jesus was tempted by the evil one who came to tempt him, he used the word of God. Each time Jesus was tempted, he looked to the Father. He turned himself to fleeing from Satan, to fleeing to the word of God. And that's just what James says here in verse 8. You know, subject yourself to the word. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. We can wash ourselves with the water of the word, with the spirit of the word. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Instead of being doubtful, come to God's word. Seek the deeds that God has commanded you to do. Purify your hearts, your motives, your intentions. Change those and allow those to be in line with the word of God. That's what he's calling us to, because we know we will find help from God. He promised that he has a throne of grace where we can find help in our time of need. And James says, okay, submit to God. Be subject unto him. Come under his word. Come near to the Father's heart. Enter sorrow. Verse 9. Grieve over your sin. Mourn well over your sin. Well and grieve, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. The ways that you see you are, the combative ways in your hearts towards your brother, towards your sister, uh, in the jealous desires of your heart, be broken over those things, he's saying. Don't just leave it there, thinking, well, this is sort of just how I am. It's like, no, there is a battle going on. You're enraged. There's war in your soul. Some of you have gone to war before. You know the unrest of it. Some of you have played sports where you're battling out like football. You're just constantly going and bashing each other. It's a battle. Now he's saying, instead of being in conflict with yourselves and trying to get what you want, let that go. Grieve over your sinful desires for that. And do battle to come down and humble yourself before God change some things about yourself change your disposition here so that you can be humble before God second corinthians 7:10 godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret at all but worldly sorrow brings death see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness what eagerness To clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. It's time for justice to happen in your souls. And God is inviting you to be humble enough to come and know his godly sorrow and to repent and to turn away. And this is God's ultimate promise to us. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. He will lift up your head. You don't have to do it. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. You can be that child of God that's in need of your father's care and love. You can be that child of God that weeps on your bed at night but comes to the father so that he can hold you in his arms and give you the confidence of his love. He will lift you up. You don't have to do it. And that's what God promises us that he will not leave us down. Though it's scary, and though we feel like he will, we feel like we have to be in control, he said, no, no, I will lift you up. Because there was one who volunteered himself. There was one who marched to the cross. There was one who was lifted up on your behalf. There was one who stayed on that cross. There was one who bled and died. Gave up the spirit for you so that you could be lifted up with him in heaven, in the heavenly places, knowing the comforts of the father, knowing the assurance of the fathers, knowing his patience, because we need that patience because we have conflicts all around us. We're prone to wonder, but God has lifted up Jesus in our place so that we can have a place with him to rest our conflictual souls so that we can know true peace. This is what God offers. We're not finished yet. There will continue to be moments of conflict in our nation, in our church, in our neighborhoods, but we have to band together, right, to come to this place where God is saying, come down, bring your heads down so that I can lift you up to your rightful place every time To reaffirm that you are my son, you are my daughter, and your identity would not be taken away from you. No one can snatch me from your love. This is the good news of the gospel today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this assurance. Father, even if we have steps that we've taken to resolve conflict, we still have to deal with the sin of our own hearts. And that's what you bring us. So we thank you for that. Thank you for not allowing us to move away too quickly from you, but to bring us back to your faithfulness, to your love. Would you do it again, oh God, for we are dependent upon you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.